This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, Counterspin, A Progressive Faith Sermon by Dr. Roger Ray, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. Belgium has entered its second day of mourning following Tuesday's bombing attack targeting the Brussels airport and a crowded subway station near the headquarters of the European Union. The attacks killed at least 31 people and injured over 230. The bombings took place just days after authorities arrested Salah Abdusalam, a suspect in the November Paris attacks that killed 130 people. On Wednesday, Hillary Clinton asked for Silicon Valley's help in a speech at Stanford University, calling for, quote, an intelligence surge to help track online activity. Our enemies are constantly adapting, so we have to do the same. For example, Brussels demonstrated clearly we need to take a harder look at security protocols at airports and other sensitive so-called soft sites, especially areas outside guarded perimeters. To do all this, we need an intelligence surge, and so do our allies. We also have to stay ahead of the curve technologically. That was Hillary Clinton, Democratic presidential candidate, speaking Wednesday. In response to Tuesday's attack in Brussels, Texas Senator Ted Cruz said, quote, we need to empower law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods before they become radicalized. Republican frontrunner Donald Trump called for closing up U.S. borders and doubled down on his vow to bring back waterboarding and other forms of torture. For more on the election, the attacks in Brussels and more, we're still with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald. Uh, Glenn, start off by talking about what happened in Brussels and the response in the United States. What we've seen in, in Brussels is the same exact pattern as we've seen essentially for the last 15 years each time there's one of these attacks. There is never any sense at all um, that there's some balance needed between security on the one hand and civil liberties and privacy um, and a constrained budget for our military and intelligence on the other. Every single time there's a terrorist attack, every single time, um, politicians like Hillary Clinton, Ted Cruz come forward and say, we need more of everything we've been doing. We need more money for intelligence, more surveillance authorities, um, more military presence more security. Uh, you know, it would imagine if, if every single time there were a fatal car accident, every single time in response, someone said, not, well, we accept the fact that in, in exchange for having roads, um, we know there's going to be some fatalities, but instead every time said, we need more safety uh, regulations for cars. We need to lower the speed limit even further. Um, the reality is that in an open society, um, especially if you have a government that is constantly bombing people, people around the world, there are going to be people who want to bring back violence to you um, and who are going to succeed in doing it. You can't stop people um, in every case, and it's not necessarily the case that each time there's a terrorist attack, it means that you need more security measures, more intelligence gathering, and more security and military um, adventures in, in the way that politicians just almost reflexively call for. I think it's really important to note a couple of things about Brussels. Number one is the Brussels attack is now the fourth straight attack 
after Boston, the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, and then the Paris attacks, where siblings, brothers, um, were at the heart of the planning. And just like in those three previous attacks that I just referenced, uh, the attacks were carried out by people who live in the same communities, who live very close to one another, and who almost certainly met in person in order to plan them. And yet the exploitive uh, mindset of, of Western politicians is to say, every time there's a successful attack carried out, it means we need to wage war on encryption, we need greater surveillance, um, we need more police in, in these communities. But the reality is that people are meeting in person. If you're talking about siblings and cousins and family members and people who go to the same mosque who are meeting in person to plan the attacks, none of that will actually help detect the attack. Um, what's amazing is that if you listen to the media narrative about how these attacks get discussed, and I, I had the misfortune of, of listening to hours of CNN coverage and MSNBC coverage because I'm traveling about these attacks, the one question that's never asked is, what is the motive of the attackers? Why are people um, who are in their 20s and 30s willing to sacrifice their lives to kill innocent people in this really horrific way? Um, and ultimately, it's not hard to figure out. They say what it is, um, and it's really not that difficult, which is the countries that they're targeting, France and Belgium and the United States and others, um, are in Iraq and Syria bombing ISIS. Um, and so, of course, it's just natural to expect, doesn't mean it's justified, it's never justified to target civilians, but it's natural to expect um, that countries that go and bomb um, ISIS, ISIS is going to want to bomb and attack back, just as the United States for 15 years has been declaring itself at war and bombing multiple countries and then act surprised when people want to come and attack us back. And so I think more than saying we need more intelligence and more surveillance and wage war and encryption and more bombing campaigns, um, we need to be asking whether there are things that we can be doing uh, that reduce the incentive for people to want to kill us and, and in the process kill themselves, and especially the support infrastructure that they get. Um, because of the anti-American and anti-European sentiment that gets generated when we engage in all of this violence in the world. Well, one of the other, uh, well, what the Islamic State has revealed uh, uh, explicitly about its own motivations, uh, which was uh, revealed in a newsletter uh, circulated after the Paris attacks in November, uh, included uh, weakening, that is their objectives, weakening uh, unity across the European continent and exhausting European states economically. What, what do you make of that, Glenn? Well, we've seen the same type of announcements and rationale very early on from al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, who talked about the ultimate goal of the 9-11 attacks being to provoke the United States into this endless campaign of, of militarism and, and um, military spending that would essentially weaken and, and ultimately bankrupt the United States, much like the Soviet adventures, military adventures in, in the 1980s helped to bring down um, the Soviet Union. And we seem to be happy to play into their hands. I mean, the goal isn't just to make us engage in military adventures that weaken us economically. It's also, as, as ISIS has said, to drive a wedge between Western Muslims and the Western societies in which they live to essentially eliminate what ISIS refers to as the gray zone, which are Western Muslims, first generation immigrants or second generation who are born in these countries um, to feel alienated from the Western governments and the Western countries in which they live um, and to essentially have to choose between either ISIS 
and those governments and to feel so alienated by their own countries that they're driven into the arms of extremism. And ironically, again, the best friend of ISIS seems to be Western politicians um, like you hear Ted Cruz, like you hear from Donald Trump, um, who essentially every time there's one of these attacks want to declare Muslims or Islam uh, the actual culprit, which does nothing but serve to exacerbate the very wedge that ISIS is trying to um, drive into the heart of these Muslim populations. Well, and, and Western societies. Glenn, let's go right now to the two men you mentioned. Following the Belgium attacks, um, Republican presidential contender Ted Cruz issued a statement saying, quote, we need to immediately halt the flow of refugees from countries with a significant al-Qaeda or ISIS presence. We need to empower law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods before they become radicalized. Later um, on Tuesday, Senator Cruz spoke to CNN where there is a high level of gang activity. The way to prevent it is you increase the law enforcement presence there and you target the gang members to get them off the street. I am talking about any area where there is a higher incidence of radical Islamic terrorism. If you look at Europe, Europe's failed immigration laws have allowed a massive influx of radical Islamic terrorists into Europe, and they are now in, in isolated neighborhoods where radicalism festers. So that was Ted Cruz. And on the day of the attacks, Donald Trump was asked on NBC's Today Show about what Belgium officials should do to get information from uh, uh, Salah Abdeslam, who was captured last week. I'm not looking for breaking news on your show, but frankly, uh, the waterboarding is, is up to me. Uh, and if we change the laws and or have the laws, uh, waterboarding would be fine. And if they wanted to, as long as it's with, because, you know, we work within laws. They don't work within laws. They have no laws. We work within laws. Uh, the waterboarding would be fine. And if they could expand the laws, I would do a lot more than waterboarding. You have to get the information from these people. And we have to be smart and we have to be tough. And and we can't be soft and weak, which is what we are right There's now. And in fact, uh, he said that we have to torture them. Um, uh, Donald Trump said that this week. Um, at least he called it what it was. But talk about the significance of what Donald Trump is calling for, the man who could be President Trump and Cruz before him. Yeah, first of all, I'm, I, I do get a little bit disturbed by this um, widespread um, notion on the part of a lot of well-intentioned people that Donald Trump is somehow so far outside of what we regard as what had been previously acceptable within American political discourse. I mean, if you look at what Ted Cruz has actually been saying and what he's been doing, um, you could certainly make the case, and I would be someone who agrees with this, that Ted Cruz is, is in many respects, maybe most respects, um, more dangerous than, than Trump. I mean, Ted Cruz is this true evangelical believer, um, who seems to be really eager to promote this extremist, uh, religious agenda. Um, you have him, uh, constantly expressing animosity toward, toward Islam and, and toward Muslims in a way that's sort of redolent of almost a religious type or he holds himself out as this constitutional scholar and a small government conservative and yet advocates some of the most extremely unconstitutional measures you could possibly imagine, like targeting American communities filled with Muslims with additional police uh, patrolling and, and monitoring and, and surveillance um, and scrutinizing. And, and as far as Donald Trump is concerned, you know, when he comes out and says, 
I want to do waterboarding and worse. And we all act so shocked. I mean, as you just said, you know, he almost deserves credit for what he's saying in the sense that he's being more honest. Um, the United States for 10 years did engage in torture. We did use not only waterboarding, but but techniques far worse. Um, and the reason why that's still part of the debate is because the current administration under President Obama made the choice not to prosecute any of the people, um, who implemented those, those, those techniques and who used them despite the fact that we're parties to, to, to treaties requiring their criminal prosecution. And when he did that, he turned torture into nothing more than just a standard partisan political debate. And, and that's why people like Donald Trump are able to stand up without much repercussion and advocate that we use those techniques, but we shouldn't act all that shocked. The U.S. government did exactly what Donald Trump is advocating as recently as as seven or eight years ago. Well, didn't President Obama say we tortured some folks? Right. And, and so, you know, I think if you look at the reaction to Donald Trump, um, and this kind of horror that even Republican elites and, and conservatives, um, are expressing when reacting toward him, um, to call it hypocritical is really to be generous. It is true that he doesn't use the language of, um, political diplomacy. He doesn't really use euphemisms. He speaks like ordinary people speak when talking about politics at their dining room table, which is one of the reasons for his appeal. Um, and in that sense, he actually provides an important value, which is he's stripping away um, the pretense of what the American political system and American political culture have become and describing it in a much more honest way. And and that's the reason that so many Republican elites and and other media figures um, who have no problem with Republican politicians or even Democratic politicians who advocate similar policies, why they're so offended by Donald Trump, because he sort of renders the entire system nakedly candid about what it actually is. She says, wake up, it's no use pretending, I'll keep stealing, breathing her. Birds are leaving over autumn's ending, one of us will die inside these arms. Eyes wide open. attacks in Brussels, a number of U.S. politicians went to the media to share their thoughts on the horrible terrorist attack. However, Ted Cruz took things a little far when he talked about the importance of using our local police departments to monitor Muslim neighborhoods where acts of radical Islamic terrorism could take place. In fact, uh, he was so aggressive in stating that that he did get a little blowback not only from Democrats or liberals, he got some blowback from the NYPD. In fact, he specifically mentioned the NYPD and how they were uh, doing a controversial program in New York City where they would follow around perfectly innocent Muslims and monitor them to make sure that they weren't getting involved in anything questionable. Well, uh, he has now gone on CNN to kind of talk about that a little more. Let's uh, take a look at video number nine. Being afraid to confront what it is we're facing, being afraid to name it, that it is radical Islamic terrorism has left us vulnerable to jihad, to acts of terror. Now, that does not mean targeting Muslims. It means targeting radical Islamic terrorism. 
And it is the heart of law enforcement and national security to prevent those who are waging war on you from actually carrying out their attempted so, acts of war. So the way that he frames that is really interesting, right? Because our, not only our local police departments, but we have the FBI and the CIA. We have federal agents that are specifically looking for radical Islamic terrorism in the country. It's not like, oh, there's radical Islamic terrorist behavior happening in these neighborhoods, and we're just kind of turning a blind eye to it. No, we have laws in place. We have actions in place to seek those people out. What he initially said is we should monitor these Muslim neighborhoods, which makes it clear that you consider all of these Muslims who haven't done anything wrong potential threats. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that targeting uh, based on religion hasn't worked out well historically. but um, And the people who usually do that do come from the right wing, and they are scary folks. And so the whole idea that we're going to blame a group of people is not new. Donald Trump has done it. Ted Cruz has done it. And they have these ridiculous ideas that if you just say radical Islam, the problem will be solved. Well, you already said it a thousand times, dude. Why isn't it solved yet? Right? And that, and their idea of, of keeping people safe is going and isolating them, making them feel like they're not part of us. Well, that's brilliant. Yeah. That, that won't be counterproductive at all, will it? Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, in some pockets of Europe, that's what's happened. They feel uh, more isolated, not assimilated into the culture. And then that produces worse results. In America, we've actually done a great job of assimilating Muslims into the American culture. And now Ted Cruz would like to come around and ruin that. Thanks, Ted. Yeah, I mean, look, in order to fight the terrorism that we're experiencing on an international basis at this point, you need to make allies, right? And the best allies to have are those Muslims who have been brutalized by ISIS themselves. These are people who want to deal with the same situation that we're worried about, right? They want to solve the problem. You don't solve the problem when you start antagonizing an entire group of people. You want to criticize the religion? That's fine. Criticize the religion. But when you antagonize specific people and you make it seem as though they're all a potential threat, it's much more easier for a terrorist organization like ISIS to recruit young, impressionable Muslims. Why do you think all of these Muslim uh, suicide bombers are in their early 20s? It's because they're young. They feel antagonized. They feel isolated, right? I'm not saying that, oh, these people would have been great individuals if we all treat them great, right? But at the same time, don't go out of your way to make it seem like, oh, my God, this is a Muslim neighborhood. We need to monitor them because they're all a potential threat. So the guys who do the bombings are fundamentalists. And in a fundamentalist mindset, it's us versus them. So when you have a fundamentalist on the other side, like Ted Cruz come around and go, you're right. It is a you versus us. And I'm going to make sure that I get sick the police on you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to patrol the other neighborhoods. Like, but I'm going to treat you like gang members. And that's the analogy he used today. And that was his excuse. Like, oh, we do it to gangs. We have that clip, actually. Let's go to that. It does sound like in your statement, in empowering law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods, I still don't quite understand what that means. Uh, it, it's very simple. It's doing what law enforcement does in any circumstance. If you, if you have a neighborhood where there is a high level of gang activity, the way to prevent it is you increase the law enforcement presence there and you target the gang members to get them off the street. But you're talking That's about Muslim neighborhoods, not, not radicals particularly. I am talking about any area where there is a higher incidence of radical Islamic terrorism. What, which area is he talking about? I don't know. In the United States of America. That's the, by the way, he's not talking about Europe. He's talking about here, right? So what, San Bernardino? <laughs> I mean, it was that, that one Muslim couple that did that. In that area, are we going to go try to find other random Muslims in San Bernardino? Yeah. What, what a bizarre, that's not a, 
a place that has a high percentage of Muslims in America, let alone radical Muslims. Are we going to go to Dearborn, Michigan? But wait a minute. Yeah, there's a lot of Muslims there, but there haven't been any attacks from Dearborn, Look, Michigan. You don't you don't get to throw away like well-established laws because you're afraid or because you want to get the public paranoid about terrorist attacks, so you're fear-mongering. We have laws in place that state that authorities can investigate a situation when there's probable cause. If there's no probable cause, why would authorities just randomly go to a predominantly Muslim neighborhood and start monitoring them? Well, if you want to talk about the places where there's been high incidence of crime, like his, in his analogy of the gangs, well, we can go to a place where there's been high incidence of mass shootings. Well, there's more mass shootings in states that allow uh, looser gun laws. So should we start patrolling the South, patrolling Texas, patrolling these areas? I mean, that's where the mass shooters come from. That's where they come from, Ted. And we have a lot more mass shooters than we have terrorist activity. That's a bigger problem. Wouldn't you admit that's a bigger problem? You know it is, right? You know as a matter of, of, of statistics, facts, etc. So let's go stalk your ass. Oh, no, you don't like that. You just want to scapegoat someone. And and be deeply un-American, as President Obama said today about about Ted Cruz. The whole country was built to be secular, where you have freedom of religion, and we don't discriminate against any religion. He doesn't like that. He wants a theocracy, like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, like the Vatican. You know, some are better than others, but mm-hmm. but he wants a religious state. Well, then go live in a religious state because this ain't one. Well, Obama did respond to him, and I want to give you guys at least a little bit of what he had to say. So let's take a look at video number eleven. One of the great strengths of the United States, and part of the reason why we have not seen more attacks in the United States, is we have a uh, extraordinarily successful, patriotic, integrated Muslim American community. Uh, they do not feel ghettoized. They do not feel isolated. Their children are our children's friends, going to the same schools. They are our colleagues in our workplaces. They are our men and women in uniform, fighting for our freedom. And so any approach that would single them out or target them for discrimination is not only wrong and un-American, but it also would be counterproductive because it would reduce the, the strength, the antibodies that we have to resist terrorism. He's right about that. He's right about all of that. It, you know, as he was talking, I had a random thought, which when I thought about it, it's not that random. Uh, you know what's uh, a, a common theme for all the, the Muslim radical uh, terrorists that have done the bombings, the shootings, etc.? They don't have kids. Because mm-hmm. he said there, their kids go to school with our kids. And that's such a great point. When your kids go to school with somebody else, you don't want to blow that school up. Right. right? You don't want to blow up those families. You don't want to blow yourself up, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, not every time, right? It, there have been some terrorists, obviously, who've had some kids. But then I thought about it, wait a minute now. If you look at all the mass shooters, almost none of them have kids. So maybe the answer is sex. <laughs> okay, the answer is always sex. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I mean. You're having a bad day, have some sex. And, and if you wanted to uh, target anybody, apparently, whether it's terrorists or mass shooters, the group to target is young males. And that's exactly what happens. They're, again, I mean, I keep reiterating it, and people, for some reason, have this knee-jerk reaction as if I'm talking nonsense. It's logical. You antagonize young people, you make them feel like they're the others, right? And what do they do? They look for something that they can call a family, right? They want to be accepted. Everyone wants to be accepted. And so... When you do ISIS's bidding, when you antagonize 
moderate, innocent Muslims who have no interest in fun- the fundamental interpretation of the Quran, well, then you're doing ISIS's bidding. You're allowing ISIS to recruit these people. There's always going to be a certain percentage of people who are going to be maniacs who are going to show- shoot up a movie theater or who are going to blow up an airport. So let's not give them any more reasons to do that. And yes, I blame them for doing it. Of course, that's why we try to bring them to justice and we spend a lot of effort capturing them. And, and oftentimes they get killed while, while we're trying to do that. And so nobody's saying we should do that. Of course we should do that, right? But don't make that process worse by taking this group of people that are more likely to go in that direction and add fuel to the fire, which is exactly what Ted Cruz is doing here. And by the way, I don't want anybody to get me wrong. Uh, I don't think we should go profile young males and patrol their neighborhoods. Uh, how about, I, how I, about we don't profile? I don't know when it got to a point where all of a sudden we're like, yeah, you know what? Profiling is a great idea again. Yeah. No, we don't profile, okay? We have laws. There's probable cause. If there's any reason to believe that someone poses a threat, absolutely investigate them to the fullest extent of the law. There's no question, okay? But all of these ridiculous discussions that we have about, like, you better use the right phrases and make sure you say radical Islamic terrorism. Okay, radical Islamic terrorism. I hate radical Islamic terrorism. Jenk hates radical Islamic terrorism. Is that helping the situation in any way, shape, or form? Has Ted Cruz come up with a real foreign policy idea that would actually solve this problem instead of make it worse? Absolutely not. We have these ridiculous, nonsense, juvenile conversations every time there's a terrorist attack. I want it to end, but you can't let your fear and your emotions play a role in the decisions that you make. Look, I too was a young male once, so I I don't want profiling because it's irrational, and more important than that, it's un-American. That's not what we do, right? And if you were going to profile people, yes, young males with no kids would be the group that is far more likely to do violence uh, in any of these settings. But we shouldn't profile them either. Let's not give in to the knuckleheads like Ted Cruz and Donald Trump who want to divide us. Okay, we are stronger, and we have less of these terrorist attacks and less of these violent attacks overall if we are united and we can empathize with one another, right? Instead of hating one another. So that hatred is what leads to the violence in the first place, no matter where it comes from. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Even this part has become rote. 
As major media outlets gave superstory coverage to the terrible bomb attacks in Brussels that killed 31 people and hurt more than 200, some took a moment to say that, yes, there had also been similar attacks recently elsewhere. In fact, just nine days earlier, a car bomb went off at a bus stop in Ankara, Turkey, killing 34 people and injuring at least 125. In that case, as Neil DeMoss noted on FAIR.org, the New York Times didn't provide an A1 story with interactive graphics and a scrolling ticker, but instead a short story on page 6 that said that the attack, quote, raised questions about the Turkish government's ability to protect its citizens, close quote. The Washington Post had a shorter piece, datelined Beirut, some 400 miles away. And that's without consideration of fatal attacks in recent months in Mali, Tunisia, Indonesia, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, and Somalia. The dead there had families, too, and hopes for the future. But we're used to this by now. Some attacks rend the social fabric and require response, while others, U.S. media hint, are business as usual. The Times called the Ankara attacks the latest of a string, and only later acknowledged that it was, in fact, the first to target civilians. No one's asking for some mathematical apportioning of grief or outrage or column inches, but if we're to have a creditable conversation about the prevention of terrorist violence, that has to include consideration of which deaths we mourn and which we normalize. It's admittedly hard to picture U.S. media behaving thoughtfully at such a time when we see the difficulty they have even behaving responsibly. Of many disappointing showings after the Brussels bombings, that of NBC's Today show rose to remarkability. (laughs) As Salon's Jack Merkinson pointed out, the show's March 22nd interview with Donald Trump focused eagerly on getting the candidate to describe whether or how he would torture the recently captured alleged orchestrator of last year's Paris attacks. Matt Lauer wanted to know, quote, what would you say would be appropriate in terms of what they can do to him at this moment to get any information that they can about possible further attacks, close quote. And Savannah Guthrie followed, quote, when you say do whatever they have to do, can you be specific, close quote. Nowhere, Merkinson notes, was there any suggestion that torture is an obscenity. The host's interaction with Hillary Clinton was also disturbing, with questions like, is this something that people should fear? That seemed drawn from a handbook of what not to do. Listen to this question from Matt Lauer. Quote, It seems, Secretary Clinton, that information is so vital when it comes to combating terrorism, and that is why perhaps... Perhaps you hear some people say when you get a key suspect like the one who was taken into custody in Brussels last Friday, maybe you should use some enhanced techniques to get information out of that person. It also may be why, if you look at this country in the wake of the San Bernardino shootings that you just brought up, a lot of people say, wait a minute, Apple, you've got to unlock that phone that was left behind by one of the shooters because it's crucial that we get that information. Is that simply just a logical step that people take after events like this? And do you agree with it? Close quote. 
social media, independent media, and even opinion columns increasingly include voices of people saying that the war on terror doesn't promote peace but instead drives terrorism, that the healthy response to attacks is to refuse to hate and refuse to be afraid, and that media can report these events without reveling in violence and revenge fantasy. Corporate media isn't trying to amplify those voices, but neither can they drown them out. In the parlance of religion, we talk a lot about a concept we call redemptive suffering. That is, like the beatings of Martin Luther King Jr., his imprisonment in Alabama, his eventual murder. These were redemptive in the sense that his suffering helped to empower the civil rights movement that changed the fate of the entire world. The beatings, imprisonment, and the final murder of Archbishop Oscar Romero were not meaningless. His willingness to suffer on behalf of the poor of El Salvador helped to alleviate the oppression of the poor in Central America. Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa both lived lives of abject poverty, suffering day in and day out during their entire long lives in order to lift the plight of the poor in New York City, and in Calcutta. Gandhi's hunger strikes, his beatings and imprisonment at the hand of the British Army, and finally his execution, helped to liberate the entire subcontinent of India. Today on Easter, if we were to draw back the curtain of centuries of manipulative mythology, wishful thinking, we can see that the arrest, the torture, and the death of Jesus of Nazareth have also been similarly redemptive. Not because uh, the blood cult, that there was some angry uh, demonic god that demanded a blood sacrifice to gain our forgiveness, but rather that he was willing to stand up to the power of the greatest empire that the world had ever seen at that time. That he was willing to spend his own life defending the impoverished and oppressed nation. I think that the event of the cross was a historical fact, although most everything that we've been told about that event in Sunday school and in church for most of our lives has not just been simply false and misleading, but in many cases it has actually been quite damaging. As dated as many people might think the lyrics of the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar may be, and I show it in my courses in college when I teach the life and teachings of Jesus, and College students oftentimes laugh at the costumes and the dance routines, and yet I can tell you that the writers of Superstar had a much more clear grasp on the historical theology of the Jesus story than most pastors, and and I would have to say most seminary professors do today. The torture and execution of Jesus of Nazareth was 
a sad event. It was wrong. It was murder. It was an example of state-sponsored torture. But thankfully, his death was also redemptive in that his martyrdom has inspired centuries, millions, who have, since his time, had the courage to stand up to repressive governments, controlling corporations, employers, slave owners, and, if I may add, organized religion. Unfortunately, redemptive suffering is only the thinnest slice of the overall horizon of human suffering. Earlier this week, 34 people were killed in Brussels in three ISIS-coordinated bombings that left another 200 people injured. This was senseless. These were not people who were challenging oppression. They were not marching in a civil rights protest. They were on their way to work. They were going to school. Some people had just dropped off their parents to go home. They were on vacation. They were visiting family. They were on their way to the grocery store. This was not martyrdom. This was just murder. It's been a year since Graham Wood's much-heralded article, What ISIS Really Wants, was published in the Atlantic Monthly. In light of this recent terrorist attack in Europe, I think we could stand to review some of the myths that Wood's article exposed. Terrorists are not simply angry, unemployed thrill-seekers. They are not greedy materialists who have hijacked a religion to make their greed appear acceptable. In fact, ISIS is led by people who are sincerely religious and are devoted to a very specific form of Islam that has taken an extremely lethal them-and-us worldview. They are wanting to reverse the world order in which the Western democracies and economies have dominated the world through either secularism or Judeo-Christian mindsets. They want to flip that over and create a Muslim caliphate that would put an extremist version of Islam at the top of the world's power pyramid. They believe, in fact, that it is their turn. So when they attack Western targets, what they're trying to do is to provoke a deeper them-and-us reality, to both warn Muslims not to flee to the West and to try to incite the West into war. They want to provoke a war. They want to provoke border closings, the building of fences and walls, or to do as Ted Cruz has suggested, begin to put spies in mosques and in, in uh, Muslim neighborhoods to begin to spy on American citizens, fostering the idea that they're not really one of us. They're not really Americans. Even the thousand Muslims that serve in the armed forces in, in uniform, we want to make them feel like they are somehow not quite up to par. I have to say that Wednesday morning watching the news, it looked very much to me like Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski were actually on the payroll of ISIS. They were promoting the kind of fear that ISIS wants to provoke. Terrorism is intended to provoke terror. And Joe and Mika were doing everything they could to provoke terror on behalf of ISIS. They were giving ISIS credit for power and influence that they clearly do not have. 
They wanted to trick the West into believing that they are bigger and stronger than they are. There's not more than 30,000 people involved in all of ISIS army. There's 300,000 just in the army of Egypt. They are surrounded by armies that are much larger than they are. ISIS simply is the JV team. That's why they don't strike in military ways. They strike as terrorists with, with suicide bombers. It is the only way that they can get attention. But what Joe and Mika were saying could have been a script written by the PR people at ISIS. They were doing everything they could to make Americans as afraid as ISIS wants us to be. So MSNBC executives, if you're listening, consider this to be your last warning. What they did report on March 22nd was that ISIS killed 34 people in Brussels. What they did not say is that the week before, ISIS had killed 35 people in Ankara, Turkey. And the week before that, they'd killed 47 in Baghdad. And in January, there were 50 killed in in Libya. And since the Brussels bombing, there's been another suicide bombing in Beirut, killing dozens. The majority of victims of ISIS are not Western Christians. They are Middle Eastern Muslims who are peace-loving, hard-working people who are just trying to get an education for their children, pay for a house, and feed their family the same way that the people in the airport in Brussels were. The hundreds of thousands of refugees who are streaming out of Syria are not bringing jihad with them. They are fleeing jihad. They are trying to get away from the same people that we are worried about. They are victims, just like the victims in Paris and in Belgium. So to be honest, ISIS actually does have a point. We don't make Muslims as human as we do immigrants from Western Europe. When 130 people were killed in Paris last fall, we flew French flags. Even out here in this neighborhood in Missouri, there were people that had huge French flags flying, and everyone was saying, Je suis Paris, I am a Parisian. But that same year, there were 137 people killed in Yemen. No one was saying, Anna, Yemeni. They're not wrong in their belief that we have not accepted them as equals. Our news reporting leaves no doubt that we value the lives of white northern Europeans a thousand times more than we value the lives of dark-skinned people in the Middle East and Africa. I wish it wasn't so obviously true, but it is undeniable. But in reaction of, in the reaction of the corporate media, if, if you're willing to agree with me, and of course I've got the only active microphone right now, so it looks like absolutely unanimous agreement, <laughs> that what the media said was wrong, And the manipulation of Homeland Security Agency, look, folks, Homeland Security, which works for us ostensibly, but they use terrorist attacks to try to get us to give up more of our privacy, more of our civil rights, so that Big Brother can protect us from the scary, scary brown people. So if that's all wrong, what is right? Oh, and Tim Cook at Apple, if you're watching, don't you dare let the CIA have a back door into my iPhone. They don't have any business invading the privacy of every American. That's what fascist regimes do, and we are not fascists. 
If you want to see the right reaction to terrorism, I think the people of Brussels and Paris are giving us good examples. They're holding marches against fear. Not marches against Islam, not marches to protest for greater defenses or for us to bomb the Middle East until the sand becomes a mirror. They're marching against fear. They are refusing to change their daily lives. They're refusing to surrender their pluralistic society, their free Europe in which people cross national boundaries without passports. They are refusing to live in fear of murderous criminals. And and on that vein, let me throw some roses at our president. I don't often get to praise elected officials, so I want to do it when I have a good chance. President Obama was in Cuba trying to peacefully and mercifully bring an end to the Cold War that hasn't made any sense for 30 or 40 years and has caused the suffering of millions of people in Cuba. He was right not to change his itinerary, not to run back to Washington and act scared because some misguided lunatics had blown themselves up in Brussels. I was glad when he went to a baseball game and showed the world that we are made of sterner stuff than his critics who were at least verbally soiling their pants. However, the staff member that allowed him to be led to the dance floor to tango in Argentina, I would like to have the honor of firing that person myself. That was a bridge too far. And President Obama, if you're listening, we don't ever want to see that again. You've heard me say this before, but on this Easter Sunday, in the wake of these recent terrorist acts, it deserves to be said again. Even though in modern Christianity the word faith is often used to mean the equivalent of assassinating your brains and making yourself believe childish myths and superstitions that no thinking person could believe, in fact, the word faith in its original context did not mean that. In Greek, the word is pistis. In the early days of the church, when someone was being baptized, they were making a decision to stand in the face of the power of the Roman Empire. They were oftentimes having to stand up to their family's indigenous organized religion. And so when they were lowered into the water and brought up, they shouted the word, pistis, which means courage, courage to stand against oppression, courage to stand against those that want us to live in fear in servile lives. They had the courage to embrace a way of living that was resurrection in the face of overwhelming power. If I could give you anything on earth, if I could give you a gift of anything in the face of this us-and-them violent mentality that has divided the world, it would be that you would just stop being afraid. Just stop being scared. Sure, we should be smart about border security. We should use the best intelligence technology and information sharing that we can to find as many bad guys as we can. But ultimately, what beats the bad guys is if you refuse to let them incite you into fear and anger. If you refuse to retaliate by going to war, if you refuse to simply be afraid. If we have the courage not to hate, even when we are hated, to try not to bomb the Middle East until they like us better, if we can learn to include rather than exclude, to love rather than to hate, to embrace rather than to fear, then, my friends, maybe the whole world 
we'll be able to celebrate an Easter resurrection. That's just my opinion, but I'm probably not wrong. What drives a man to lock his doors and bar his windows tight? To leave his lights on time and so his house appears so bright. A temper fence around his door and cameras on the walls. A fortress so secure that he can hardly get in at all. Fear is a villain when he grips you late at night. He'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you. I could never have envisioned candidates running on platforms where the campaign promises were not just to do this, but to do it more. And the terrorist family thing, you know, when we talk about Donald Trump being a singular candidate, there's no analogy. There's no, there's no, there's no past presidential hopeful you could point to that looks anything like this guy in terms of you know, comparisons. It's all apples and oranges if you're comparing Trump to any candidate I've ever seen in this country. I mean, nobody would ever say anything like what Trump said in a visit with the people on Fox one day. I've got a CNN story from December 3rd, 2015 by Tom Lobianco explaining, you know, what happened on the appearance. And the headline is, Donald Trump on terrorists take out their families from the beginning of the piece, quote. Donald Trump said Wednesday that he would kill the families of terrorists in order to win the fight against ISIS. The billionaire businessman, the story says, was asked by the host of Fox News' Fox and Friends how to fight ISIS, but also minimize civilian casualties when terrorists often use human shields. This is Trump speaking now, quote, The other thing with the terrorists is you have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. When they say they don't care about their lives, you have to take out their families, Trump said. End quote. Trump is unapologetically an ends justifies the means candidate, folks. But but this is not traditionally an ends justifies the means country. We can't just do things based on whether they work or not. We have to go about it a certain way. It's sort of the prohibition on, and I'm using air quotes here, the good guys, end quote, isn't it? Superman can face the bad guy and the bad guy can put all the civilians in danger in order to, you know, keep Superman at bay. But Superman has to, you know, he has to go care about the civilians. I mean, he's in a he's in a terrible problem here, isn't it? He's got to save civilians from the bad guy and still get the bad guy. The bad guy can put the civilians in harm's way. I mean, you know, the good guy traditionally has constraints to work around. Now, you may say, Dan, we're not burning ISIS people to death. There's your constraint right there. But I would suggest that, you know, we're not discussing what we've done here, if that's all we focus on, what we've done here since 9-11 and what is continuing to move in terms of the goalpost, if opinions like Trump continue to gain, you know, adherence, is that we're becoming okay with something that our grandparents considered to be actions that only the bad guys that we fought did. We're becoming comfortable with what our opponents in times that we've often portrayed in almost good and evil terms, you know, we're becoming more comfortable with their kind of thinking, if not their exact actions. 
And you may say, well, listen, Dan, we may waterboard or I may favor waterboarding. And yes, the Soviets might have waterboarded too, but they also had gulags and, you know, straight up truncheon beatings and all these kinds. And we're not doing that. Yes, you're right. I'm not equating them as equal. I'm saying you've crossed a line where now you're on their side. You're not as bad as they are, but you're on their side of the line. That used to be a pretty hard and fast line when I was growing up and 9-11 changed that. And this idea that somehow either it's necessary you know, then one asks why it was not necessary in the Cold War to have a policy at the national level about torturing or in the Second World War. And there's a reason we didn't do that. What was it and what's changed? Now, sometimes when you get into an argument with some of these people, I'm not going to mention any names, but they have a tactic. It's a debating tactic for reducing any historical evidence to a meaningless thing. In other words, they cut out any arguments based on past experience, right? Your, your evidence doesn't matter because this is unlike anything that's ever happened before. The war on terror is apples and oranges from anything, Dan. So none of the historical experience you bring up is relevant to this because this is, you know, unlike anything else. And just so you know, folks, this is the argument that is always made whenever any debater wants to reduce any historical evidence to meaninglessness. So you might as well say, every situation that's ever happened in the world is different, so past experience is never relevant. And we'll just cut to the chase there. Nonetheless, you also cannot argue that somehow, you know, we are weak or politically correct now and that that's why we won't do whatever it takes to get the information we need or whatever it is Trump wants to say. Because folks, I mean, our grandparents didn't do it. They weren't weak. They weren't politically correct. They didn't do it 100 years ago either. This sort of stuff used to happen in police departments in certain localities. I mean, you didn't want to end up in certain police stations in the 1930s when they wanted you to confess to something that hit you on the head with a phone book till you did. That sort of stuff is very different, though, let's understand, than a national torture program. And I have a hard time finding common ground with people who think it's okay. I'm devoid of my normal tools for having a, you know, useful discussion with people, flexibility, understanding, trying to see things from their point of view. I become a moralist, a redliner, and I'm difficult to talk with. And I run out of things to say because it's not an argument. I mean, sometimes with moral issues, you know, you realize it's not a logical discussion to be won on the merits of your arguing ability. Sometimes it's just a you know, right and wrong deal. And if you think it's right and I think it's wrong, there is nothing to discuss. We differ on the fundamental point. To me, if you can see a future black mark on America's reputation, just don't go there. I mean, how many incidents of sabotage would we have had to have prevented by locking Japanese Americans up in internment camps in the Second World War for that black mark to be worth it? I think experience has shown that we're not going to forget our black marks, right? They're not going to be swept under the rug. And a generation or two afterwards, there's not going to be people going, well, you could understand how they felt. They're not going to be that way. You don't get judged, you know, that lightly by history. If you see a black mark in the future, could we just say, don't do stupid crap. Don't go there. You're going to regret that later. You're going to have a historical hangover if you do that. How many terrorist attacks would we have to prevent? This is assuming you buy into the idea that torture works, by the way. How many terror attacks would we have to thwart to make the loss, whatever you consider the loss to be here, you know, in terms of moving in a direction our grandparents wouldn't have gone in, worth it? 
And if you say, Dan, if we stop one nuclear attack, it's already worth it. You know, well, then I think we're operating under Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine, sort of. There was a book called The 1% Doctrine, and it's named after a Dick Cheney line where he said, quote, if there's a 1% chance that Pakistani scientists, for example, is what he means, are helping al-Qaeda build or develop a nuclear weapon, we have to treat it as a certainty in terms of our response. It's not about our analysis. It's about our response. End quote. If you actually govern that way, though, and, and, and match your policies to that way of looking at things, if there's even a 1% chance that somebody will blow a nuclear weapon up in a U.S. harbor, then you legitimize anything, don't you? I mean, essentially what you're saying is, in order to protect ourselves, none of our national values mean anything. I guess I can't go there with you because the whole thing that makes this country special, that the marketing materials celebrate, that we, you know, pledge allegiance to all those kinds of things are those values. I mean, I understand realism, I understand protection, I understand fear, I understand all of that stuff. But does that mean that those values never meant anything but amorphous, easy to, to jettison unrealities that, that, that drift away and evaporate like mist when confronted by hard realities like bombs and blood and terror? And if so, why didn't that happen before? You know, I keep, again, I, I know people that will say to me, Dan, listen, this war on terror is like nothing we've ever faced in human history before. So all that stuff about our grandparents, they would have reacted just like we would have. But they didn't in times that are pretty darn bad. In other words, you know, those who fought the Second World War, in my opinion, were involved in a conflict much more serious than what we're involved in now. And you may say, Dan, the potential for nuclear weapon going off. Yes, yes, yes. Potential schmenschel. The Third Reich is the Third Reich. And in the Cold War... We've never faced anything like that. We still face that. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. There's still a bunch of nuclear weapons aimed at us right now. It's easy to forget about that when we're worried about the potential of one dirty nuclear bomb in Manhattan when you could talk about thousands of, you know, multiple independent reentry vehicle warheads smashing into U.S. cities and then, you know, five minutes later smashing in again to kill any survivors, which was the design, by the way, folks. So maybe we put our fear into perspective and remember that the people who used to have much more reverence, I would say, for the idea of how you play the game in terms of the way a country like the United States is supposed to operate in conjunction and in harmony with its stated ideals, or at least more harmony, that they faced absolute extinction. In fact, it was so hair-trigger, it might even happen by accident. It wasn't a 1% doctrine. It was probably, at times, 50-50. Early 1980s, Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. I mean, there were several times when the entire life as we know it on this planet could have been set back 3,000 years. And permanent radioactivity everywhere. And guess what we didn't do? have a torture program where we torture people routinely as part of policy. Those politically correct grandparents of mine just didn't know how to get tough, I guess. Or they considered the value of the ideals to be worth a much higher price, potentially, 
than we do. We just heard clips featuring Democracy Now! speaking with Glenn Greenwald about conservatives playing into the hands of terrorists and how torture is now just a political disagreement because Obama decided not to prosecute any of the architects of the torture program when he came into office. The Young Turks discussed the counterproductive nature of Ted Cruz's plan to basically just ghettoize the Muslim population of the U.S., Counterspin looked at a couple of the pathetic responses in the media to the Brussels bombing. Dr. Roger Ray gave another of his sermons decrying giving in to fear in the face of terrorism. And finally, Dan Carlin on Common Sense lamented the state of what is considered acceptable political positions in this year's election. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Ruben from Oakland. Calling about the most recent episode regarding uh, app-based driver services. I work for one of those, but it's like a food delivery thing. So it's like Uber, but for food delivery. Um, and there are a couple of things that I've noticed that are, re- that are really problematic about um, how they're structured. And it speaks to what Richard Wolf was talking about with regards to the exploitative aspect of how these companies treat their drivers. So first off... When you work for one of those companies, you're an um, independent contractor. I don't know if any of those app like services do, in fact, like employ their drivers, but I don't see why they would when they can have them work as independent contractors. And the reason for that is that classifying, you know, an employee as an independent contractor instead of an employee, like it sort of absolves the company of certain responsibilities. And two of those that I'm going to speak to are. Uh, the, is the um, insurance loophole and the tax situation. So, like, uh, from an insurance standpoint, you actually have to have commercial driver's insurance, at least in California where I am, to operate uh, your vehicle legally for one of those companies. You know, so as an independent contractor, if I'm going to be making money using my vehicle, then I need, like, commercial driver's insurance because it's, like, it's not like I'm just driving my car around. But a lot of people don't know that. And I've noticed that as a trend amongst other people who work for those companies, they aren't aware of the the insurance situation. So I also work in a grocery store and like sometimes I'll talk to the grocery equivalent of the app based driver service, you know, and uh, they don't aren't aware that they're not driving with the right insurance. So like the the end result and the, the, the really scary outcome is that like people who are driving for these companies like Uber and getting into accidents, if they tell their insurance company that they were working for Uber and they don't have the right type of insurance, their insurance provider is under no obligation to cover their claim. So they could end up in an incredible amount of debt, wholly unexpectedly, for having committed insurance fraud unwittingly. And the way I see this situation is that the companies facilitate that by neglecting to tell their new contractors, right? The way that's phrased, you know, like independent contractor under an app-based driver service versus employee, it's just, it's scary for, for the aforementioned potential like insurance scandal. At the end of the day, 
these companies market themselves as saying like make fifteen to twenty dollars an hour in your spare time. So they don't factor in wear and tear, gas. Or how your taxes at the end of the year, you have to pay them. Being an independent contractor, the money that the company gives to you as compensation hasn't been hasn't been taxed yet. You know, as far as you're concerned, so you have to pay taxes to the government because you've yet to pay them. I know one person who I worked with, who I formerly worked with at a at a climbing gym. Who like is still paying off taxes from a year that he worked at Postmates as his full time job, and you know it's fucked up. So at the end of the day, these companies like Uber are uh, are um, imperil people by putting them in a situation where they unwittingly commit insurance fraud and also manipulate people into believing that they're making more money than they actually are. And that's why regulation is important, and that's why these companies need to be、um, like confronted because it's really scary. And I know that people's lives are getting ruined over it. So, thanks, Jay. Later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. Now it just so happens that I have the perfect. Personal story to go along with the voicemail that we just heard from Ruben talking about how independent contractors get screwed over,、uh, not by their employers because that would be a different thing, but by the companies that they are selling their labor to.、Uh, if you want to get technical, and it just so happens that. My story has an epilogue that happened somewhat recently, and Richard Wolf, of all people, talked about it、uh, last year. So he's going to help me tell this story of mine. Now, I think that some of you will know because I've mentioned it on the show before that many years ago I worked as a FedEx driver. That's that's actually where I was working when I got the idea for this show,、uh, which is not all that surprising because when you're a FedEx driver or pretty much any kind of driver. You spend a lot of hours, you know, nine or ten hours a day, totally monotonous work. You know, you're listening to the radio, and、uh, when you have a day like that, you need a hobby that's more mentally stimulating than that. So the hobby that I came up with was starting this podcast. So that was you know ten years ago, but I worked for FedEx between I want to say like the holiday season of 2004 all the way through 2006, right in that range. And the dirty little secret that FedEx had that I, I don't think almost anyone knew about is that FedEx drivers for FedEx ground and FedEx home delivery, at least in California, maybe other places, but I only know about California, that their drivers were legally classified as independent contractors rather than employees. Which didn't make any sense. We were treated exactly like employees. You had a specific time you were supposed to show up. You had, you know, all kinds of restrictions. You had to, you know, use the system that they had in place. You had to wear the uniforms that they had.、Uh, your truck had to fit their, you know, prescription for what their truck is supposed to look like and act like, and all of those things. And yet, we weren't 
considered employees. So we had no benefits of any kind. Uh, the only compensation we got was monetary. So theoretically, there were built into our you know pay structure money to take care of the truck and money for gas and things like that. But it was just all in one lump sum. So if something catastrophic happened, it was still on us to take care of it. So had no health insurance uh, given to us. And, uh, you know, as Ruben was saying, when you're an independent contractor, you have to pay your own taxes. A lot of people don't realize that. And so they get themselves, you know, screwed later because they've like forgotten to pay their taxes, thinking that it was taken out of your paycheck the way it is if you're an employee. Uh, I, I was also one of those people, you know, I was in my early 20s, didn't have my shit figured out didn't know how to pay taxes manually, basically. I'd never had to do it before. So, you know, yeah, like years went by and I had to pay an old tax bill years and years later. And then there's an even dirtier little secret that I think is even less well-known, which is that when you're an independent contractor or self-employed in any way, you have to pay self-employment taxes, which sounds terrible, but there is a somewhat reasonable explanation for it, which is that Social Security taxes and Medicare taxes, they are designed to be paid for by both the employee and the employer, which sounds nice. So if you're an employee your whole life, then you pay into Social Security, but your employer is also paying into, into Social Security sort of on your behalf. And then when you need to withdraw from Social Security, you get that money and everything's fine. And so the not 100% of the onus is on the individual. Uh, some is on the, you know, some of the onus is on the business. However, if you are the individual and the business, well, then you still have to pay both sides of that. And so that was one of the giant benefits for FedEx that they were literally shoving off all of that tax money onto the contractors themselves. Each individual contractor had to pay self-employment taxes, money intended to be paid by the employer, which should have been FedEx, but wasn't because they just decided to classify us differently. So that gives you a bit of the context. You know, we had to pay for all of our own expenses, all of our own taxes. Uh, and when things went catastrophically wrong, which they sometimes would, you know, your truck breaks down. Well, then you have to rent a truck and drive with a rented truck while you are paying for your truck to be fixed. You know, it's just a mess. And it is one of the most blatant examples of a company exploiting their drivers, you know, exploiting the, the people who should be their employees uh, by having all of the onus for the maintenance of the business to fall on the people least capable of paying for that maintenance. So that's the context. Now let's skip forward several years and hear what Richard Wolf has to say about it. A remarkable set of rulings, in this case both in California. The first one is a very important court case, which found in the case of workers at FedEx in California that they had been inaccurately and improperly the drivers of those famous FedEx parcel vans had been improperly designated, quote, independent contractors. That is, they were not considered by FedEx to be employees in the usual sense of the word. 
That is, you come to work, you get paid a wage or a salary, etc., etc. No, they were reclassified as independent contractors whose services were purchased. Now, this may sound to you like a quibble and a semantic difference, but it isn't. It's very real. You see, FedEx, like other companies that do this, and there are many of them, indeed one of them I'll mention in a moment, many companies do this because there's a vast collection of laws that govern employees and what services you have to give them, what working conditions you have to provide, overtime if you work them more than 40 hours, all that kind of thing, built up over 100, 200 years of struggle in the labor movement to get these protections. If you reclassify a person as no longer an employee, then he or she is not covered by those rules and regulations. An independent contractor from whom you buy a service is simply another business that the company is dealing with, and none of the protections apply. So what is done, of course, is that corporations see an advantage. They can get out from under the record-keeping the labor you have to have working to keep the records, and the money that it costs to have an employee that can save all of that by simply changing his or her name to be a independent contractor. They even save on taxes in various kinds of ways because you don't have to withhold Social Security and things like that from an independent contractor. So they save money, they save time. This is a profit-making advantage. They also can shift the costs of all kinds of business onto these independent contractors. FedEx, for example, rented the vans to the independent contractor. Rather than owning the vans as their own expense, it was put onto the workers, and so on and so on and so on. I'll just break in for a second to say that although it's possible that some drivers rented their vans, I think it's highly unlikely they were renting them from FedEx. They may have been renting them from some uh, third party. But uh, I actually still to this day get emails every once in a while from the leasing company encouraging me to buy a new FedEx truck for fifty or $60,000 and lease it through their financing program. So... In my experience, the vast majority of people were literally buying their own trucks and either owning them outright or making payments on them. So the company saves all kinds of money, which it can add to its profits. It saves all kinds of taxes. And of course, if the company pays fewer taxes, then it leaves for the rest of us to either make up that money by paying higher taxes ourselves or suffer the loss of public services that can no longer be afforded because the companies have done this. The court in California said this is illegal. This is improper. This was purely a money-saving event. It doesn't qualify. This is not what the difference was designed to be. And they imposed a fine on FedEx of $228 million to compensate several thousand workers in California who have been working for FedEx for years because they've been deprived of what they ought to have gotten. Here is a comment from me about this. Corporations hire people to figure out how to do these kinds of things. For years, they've been able to make extra money 
more than what they pay the business school graduates who figure this out. They made much more than that by abusing their workers. What, what other word should I really use? And you know, now that the court case has said you can't do that anymore, they won't fire the business school graduate. They'll set him or her to a new task. Find a new way to get us out of something we were giving to the workers. Shift the cost of business onto them in some other way. Cut back on their benefits. Uh, make them come to work a little earlier. Cut back on the free time during the day. Whatever. This constant struggle in which workers find themselves maneuvered or manipulated in one way or another and then have to fight back, in this case by going to court, this constant back and forth, that's what we call sometimes, if we're in a courageous frame of mind, class struggle. It pits the two sides in the production process, employer and employee, in this endless struggle and maneuvering. Of course, the resources that the management and the owners and the employers bring are much richer, much more well-paid, and have more the time and the support to come up with these gimmicks, like this one they got caught with. But even if you close off one avenue, you open another. It's endless. One of the reasons we talk here about cooperative enterprises in which workers were themselves, the owners and the operators, as well as the laborers in an enterprise, is this kind of absurd manipulation would stop. And now before I go, I have one more piece of this story that I just think you're not even going to believe. So I got this job, I think, as I mentioned during the holiday season. So during the holidays, FedEx, the company, actually does hire on additional drivers to help with the extra load. The independent contractors also sometimes hire subcontractors to help with their own routes. But I was initially hired on as holiday driver by the company itself. And the idea was that, you know, what they tell you is if you would like to continue working after the holidays, you can try to find a route who either needs help so you can be hired on as a subcontractor by someone else, or if someone wants to sell their route, then you could purchase that route, which is effectively buying a job. You have to buy your way into this position. You know, and then the idea is... If you ever want to quit, well, then you can just do the same thing and you just sell your route. And the the Kool-Aid that they feed you at that place, or at least the, the way it used to work, is that they, they would sell it to you really pushing the idea like you're a self-employed person. You're, you're a independent business owner. You own your route. You could buy a second route if you wanted, and you could hire a subcontractor to drive that route for you. So they, they push that like it's a good idea, like it's something to aspire to, you know, work hard, save up, buy a second route, build your independent contractor FedEx empire or whatever. And the whole thing is nonsense. But the key part of it there is that you have to buy your way in and sell your way out. So after high school, I didn't go directly to college. Uh, I, I'm incredibly lucky that my parents saved up a college fund for me, even though I ended up not using it for that purpose, and that they allowed me to use it for other things. It, it just it became instead of a college fund, a like make your life better fund. I had to use it for 
good things. I couldn't just, you know, buy a car or anything like that. So I convinced them to let me use that money to buy the FedEx route, which seemed like a good idea at the time. And after, you know, maybe a year or less, I thought, oh man, this is a terrible place to be. I got to get out of here. And so I then immediately started trying to sell the route, but it took me, I think, more than a year, maybe a year and a half to successfully sell my route. So I ended up working there for two or two and a half years when, if I had been able to, I would have quit long before that. But the only way to get my initial investment back was to wait it out until I could find, you know, unfortunately, a sucker. I had to find someone to buy it from me who I kind of knew was going to, you know, get into the system and realize how terrible it was, or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they would have liked it. But I, I, and I haven't talked to anyone, you know, connected to that whole world in years. And I, I shudder to think what happened when this lawsuit was settled and when everyone was converted from independent contractors to employees, anyone who paid in and invested to buy a route, I think that money just evaporated. There was a market, this fictitious market existed within FedEx where you could buy and sell routes. But if you were no longer an independent contractor, well, then that market just ceases to exist along with the money that you paid to get in there. So unfortunately, what I think may be true is that I got out of there just in time, right before everyone got converted back to employees. And so I got my initial investment back, but anyone who was working there when they got converted back to employees, I don't think they got their initial investment back. And that really sucks. So that's my story. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. And of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and specifically on Facebook book, setting our page to be seen first. That just makes it so that you can see the clips and the quotes and the things that we put up. You don't have to read them. You probably already heard them because you listen to the show. But by seeing them first, you can just quickly like them, share them, repost them, whatever you want to do, and then go on with the rest of your life. And then for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See